The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. You're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio, the single largest producer of Internet radio talk programming in the world. Um, you can listen to us every Wednesdays live from 9 to 10 Eastern. And you can also listen to us at the end of the day when we archive the show and, and, and it's up. And you can listen to it um, whenever you want to listen to it. Uh, uh, we have two guests this morning. My first guest is Dr. Jeannie Schaefer, Ph.D., author of Cain's Legacy, Liberating Siblings from a Lifetime of Rage, Shame, Secrecy, and Regret. Apparently, 85% of Americans have siblings, and at least one-third of adult siblings in America experience serious sibling strife. So that's what we're going to be talking about. She is considered the preeminent sibling expert, and she draws on her 38 years of experience treating siblings. My second guest is Kevin Sheridan. He's also an, an author, and his new book is The Virtual Manager, Cutting-Edge Solutions for Hiring, Managing, and Engaging Mobile Employees. And in case you don't know what mobile employees are, they're virtual employees. So Sheridan, in his book, he tackles the challenges that many companies are facing today as the business world adjusts to a virtual workplace, and that's what we're going to be talking about. But first, Dr. Jeannie Safer, Ph.D., welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning. Delighted to be here. Well, Doctor, I have uh, two siblings, two brothers, so of course I was really interested in reading your book, and I have all uh-huh. the issues that are associated with sibling sibling rival, rivalry, amongst other oh, things. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I'm glad it speaks to you personally. Well, I, I, I also, of course, wrote from personal experience, so even though I've been a therapist for 38 years, I've been a sister for almost 65. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, uh, and I wanna, that starts my first question. My first question is, why? Do we have to address these stressing or stressful sibling relationships? Why is it important for all of us to do this? The importance of this very often neglected thing, Catherine, is that they follow us everywhere for our whole lives. That just because we don't talk to them or we don't get along doesn't mean that they're not part of us and we have an inner relationship with them because if you think about it, they're part of our history. Also, these are the longest-lasting relationships. I, I found some fascinating statistics that, that sibling relationships last from 40 to 80 years, that 90% of those who have siblings have a living sibling after the age of 60. Isn't that amazing? And that yes. parents' relationships are only between about 30 and 50 years, so they're very often the only family we have left. And even if we don't talk to them, as I said, they accompany us to the bedroom and the boardroom and to our relationships with friends and colleagues all over because they, we never get away from them, even if they die. Yeah. 
So, and, and you know, it's interesting because as a social worker and as a therapist, when I was reading your book, I'm thinking, you know, the emphasis has always been on the parent-child relationship yes. and like how that affects what you do and who you choose as a spouse and how many kids you have and what kind of job. But really, it's so true. I never really thought about it until I read your book, to be honest. I'm glad, I'm glad it, it, it gave you food for thought because, you know, in, in the field of psychotherapy and particularly from the Freudian tradition, psychoanalytic tradition, siblings are totally left out. And it's astonishing when you think about it. Uh, I, I read another sibling book on siblings of the, of the mentally and physically ill. And one of my chapters was called Everybody's an Only Child because, <laughs> because Freud was one of eight. And he had tremendous sibling strife. He was the golden ex- joy of his family. Uh, and it's just something that, that never gets discussed in therapy. There was, between 1985 and, a, and 2003, there were two panel discussions at the American Psychological Association on siblings. Isn't that astonishing? It is astonishing. So why do we choose to ignore it? Not only the profession, but also... With adult siblings, why do we say, okay, I don't get along with my brother, my sister, I have a husband, I have a family, so I'm just, you know, right. I'll see him once a because year or we, I won't, and doesn't Because we think we can. We think we can. And one of the things I discovered as I started researching this is that this is a false assumption because they affect us unconsciously. And the more troubled the relationship is, the more deeply buried and the more uncontrolled are the ways that it comes out. Just look at what happens when adults deal with sick or dying parents. This is a minefield. And all the issues come out when you did, I mean, all these Every single one. Yeah. And then, of course, and I think with this generation and the baby boomers, obviously, uh, your book is really important because, I mean, now we have so many siblings who have to get together and take care of aging parents. And, and Oh, my and, goodness. I have examples in, in the book of people who just, it was unbelievable the things that they went through trying to deal with their parents. And then after the parents die, then you have to deal with the will. Yeah. And, and for instance, all the favoritism that plagued families when they were young comes out with wills where one child is preferred, somebody is ignored, uh, property is distributed, that everybody should have the same when it can't be. I mean, uh, I, I heard stories that would really make your hair stand on end. Well, I can give you I have a story too, Doctor. I have an example. Actually, I have two friends, as I'm thinking about this right now, who exactly who what you're describing has happened to them. Parent dies, both parents are dead, uh, the favorite child is the trustee of the estate, and right. both in both cases, in one case, they're actually, you know, suing their brother, right. uh, and in the other case, there's just it's constant chaos and anger, and you know, because one has control over the estate, or they feel that their brother has control over the estate, and all of those issues, those are are right there and really nasty and now it has to do with money and oh yeah and money and... money and love are very connected haven't you found? Yeah. <laughs> but you know i feel that if people read kids legacy and start thinking about these relationships maybe they'll be able to make this a little bit better when they face it i mean you know you talk about the two people you know i interviewed two different people whose parents left the family home to the other sibling and one of these people actually had built the house himself. I mean, the one who they didn't leave it to had built yes, the house. Yes, the one that they didn't leave it to. Uh. You know, what a statement to your children. Well, and, 
And, and you know, one of the things that you said in the book also, and I guess in the very beginning, that I also hadn't thought about, that it's where does this sibling, and I'm going to just use the word rivalry or the stress, come from? It comes from the parents who really, from the very beginning, who kind of give approval to this kind of stress amongst siblings. Talk yes, to us I'm, about that because it, yes, it, it, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you, you note that because that is really the thing that people don't notice. That the advice I give to parents is that rather than worry so much about the rivalry between your siblings, think about your own relationship with your own siblings and how you project those experiences onto your children. Yeah. Um, give us an example. The, give us a, an example. Well, well, I have an example that if it hadn't happened in my own extended family, I don't think I would believe it. <laughs> but since it was, <laughs> it did. I could swear that this really happened, <laughs> and I know all the people involved. Um, this is a, 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 a distant cousin of mine was many years younger than her sister. Uh, she was a toddler when her sister was a teenager. So their mother, who in other ways seemed to me a very sweet and sane woman, <laughs> put, installed a dog gate on the door of the teenager's room so she wouldn't be bothered by her little sister. Uh-huh. And of course, the teenager took this as a, you know, as a, as a excuse or a justification to steal all the little one's toys and never give them back. And when the little one went to her mother, the mother sided with the teenager. So I said, and of course the, 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 the former toddler who's now a grown woman, I said, why did she do this? <laughs> Who would think, would you think of this? I wouldn't think of this. <laughs> no. She said, she said that her mother had been, guess what, the teenager with a highly favored baby sister. So she was going to fix it retroactively, as parents often try to do unconsciously, you know, by making sure the teenager would be the one who was lavish with attention and didn't have to have the, the toddler uh, take it all away from her. So that's what, a perfect example, Dr. And what she real- showed yeah. was hatred between these, these, these two sisters for their whole lives and deep resentment of the younger one towards herself. That's what she got, unfortunately, out of this. So all parents, really, when you, when, uh, when you have your first or your second child, you really, really need to take a look at your relationship with your own siblings and make sure you don't project all that stuff onto them. I wish people would do this. If, if there's one thing that, that I could hope that the book would do would be allow people to think about their sibling relationships that have impact in so many areas. So many areas, and the more we know about it, the less we just blindly do things. Um, one of the one of the things I, I gave it a funny name, but uh, I, I call it the, the geographical proximity fallacy. This is a way we rationalize not dealing with a sibling. We say, "Oh, you know, if my sister and I didn't live so far away, we'd have a good relationship, right?" Yeah. And I say, "Well, you lived in the same house, and you didn't have a good relationship." <laughs> If you wanted to be together, you'd figure out a way to have a good relationship. And people give all these external reasons. You know, I don't like her husband, or I don't like her politics, or, you know, whatever. I don't like her children. And all of these things are excuses not to look at the real causes. So what are, let's talk about some of those causes. The, 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 what are the, because there's lots of different and there's varying degrees of stress between siblings from just simply bickering to being estranged from them and, and, and everything in between. Well, my first observation on that 
is that sibling rivalry is unavoidable. There are a lot of books with variations on the name Siblings Without Rivalry. I say toss them all out because you're never, if Cain and Abel were doing it, and, you know, the first two siblings in the book of Genesis, we're not going to change it now, okay? But sibling rivalry doesn't have to turn into sibling strife. And the difference there is that sibling rivalry is the natural conflict. Uh, it's, it's in nature. I have a chapter on suicide uh, and issues between siblings and plants and animals and everything. So it's a very long-standing thing. But the strife part comes from the biggest source of it that I found was parental favoritism, where one child is so much uh, more and very obviously overtly uh, preferred to another. Uh, this is half the time it's unconscious and half the time it's justified. And uh, this really pits people against each other in ways that are so bitter that it goes through their whole lives. And I'll give you another example from the book, which also took place in my extended family. So, so if you want to write a book about family problems, it's good to have a family because it's all there. <laughs> yeah, it is all there. It's all right yeah. there. That's so true. Oh, but my before goodness. You, so this yeah, is, maybe I... Yeah, because that brings up a question. If you have, when you have children, I mean, I come from a family of three children, and Mm -hmm. I'm the oldest, the daughter, and two younger brothers, and I have three boys. Uh And it's, I'm not quite sure how to word this, but it's sort of like, I mean, one child will bring out one thing in you and another will bring out another. But I think sometimes one child you're more simpatico with just emotionally because that's just the way it is. But you don't Absolutely. want to show t- favoritism. I actually once said to my brother, I said that one of my brothers, I said, you and he are like doing the same dance, and he, you're much more comfortable with him than you are with me. Not that you love him anymore, but you're more comfortable. And she said, that's true. She admitted to it. You know, it kind of made me feel, I mean, it was just that their personalities, uh, are they it's, get along. Was that, was that good for you when she did that? Yeah, because I, I've always yes. felt love. It's acknowledged. Yeah. You see, it's acknowledged. Um, I think most parents feel very embarrassed by it and would deny it. Uh, they, they go by the doctrine of what I call equal love, you know, which is impossible. Yeah. And um, I, I don't think, we're not talking about natural preferences, but, you know, I bet if, if you have any kind of decent relationships with your own siblings, I bet your parents could appreciate even the child who was different from them. Because, you know, if you think about it, don't you have lots of friends who are very different from you? Yeah, it makes and it I more do. exciting. I mean, if everybody's yeah. the same as you are, that's boring. That's right. So, yeah. you know, some children you'll be you'll feel a certain affinity with because they're like you, they look like you, or they act like you. And so other children you can appreciate because they have qualities you don't have. Yeah, I, that's true. I mean, I know I bring something different to the table. I make it exciting. I kind of like, I push the limits. But that, you know, right. my siblings, you know, they tend to more agree with my mother and, and go along with, what is, and I'm the one who's always kind of pushing those buttons, but there's a, some, there's a kind of an adrenaline rush with that as well. That's right, and it, it, it could be a more complicated relationship, but, you know, if, if, if a, a, a parent has thought about him or herself and thinks about the relations with the children, they can find ways. I really do feel they can find ways. It's when you don't think, you know, and you don't give any consideration to how your children are making you feel and why and what this has to do with your own history, that's when the trouble really starts. I mean, I know with my father, for instance, I was tremendously favored. I had 
I had an older brother who died several years ago, seven years older than me. And my father really repudiated my brother in many ways because he represented all the things that he felt bad about himself about. And I was the adorable one. And you were also a you were also a girl, so there was a very yes. different yeah. Absolutely, and I was a good student, and you know, and I had all kinds of so-called assets, which of course I did. I mean, I worked, and I worked hard at them, but um, that didn't mean that my brother should have been rejected the way he was. And if my father had thought about it, you know, I think I think my brother and I could have had a decent relationship. I tried later in life to to approach him, but by that point, there was too much damage, actually. Well, was he so jealous of you? He was. Was I mean? Was that the really? Yes. Yeah. He felt. Yes. He really was bitterly jealous of me, and and toward the end of his life, when he was also physically disabled, he constantly demanded money, and this is something I, I call it the sibling as an ATM, you know, that very many siblings go through, particularly the ones who have done better in the world or in their lives, they feel awful guilt that they that they have a better life, and they feel in some ways compelled to uh, support or assist a sibling uh, who then begins to feel entitled. And that could be an awful, awful situation. I, I have a whole chapter on that also. Well, okay, we've set this up, and we, we've, been just, we've actually given a, a, a lot of examples of the problems and the stresses. But, okay, and let's, how do we rectify this, or do we? Or are some relationships, just sibling relationships, just not worth? Uh, actually mending in the sense that we get back together with our sibling. Maybe we have to do it in our own heads. We have to come to terms with it, but we don't actually establish a relationship with the sibling. Well, I think you've actually said everything. <laughs> I, was, I think I should say, yes, that's true. <laughs> Good. All right. One of the things, yeah, you really, you really understood what I was saying, that um, one of the things that I think therapists and clergymen in society, you know, really push down our throats is blood is thicker than water. You know, go in there, shake hands, kiss and mug up, and to that I say, yes, blood is thicker than water, but that doesn't mean you have to drink it. That sometimes a sibling just there's too much that's gone wrong. The person is hateful or abusive or exploitative, uh, or they do unforgivable things. I also f- believe, by the way, that everything is not forgivable. And I wrote a book on that, too. <laughs> um, but, no, we can't always work it out with the sibling. It takes two to have a reconciliation. But the one thing we can always do is go back inside ourselves and understand the relationship more. Whether we ever see the sibling again, whether the sibling is dead, we can always shift our relationship to that experience. And, and also, when we start to think about a sibling relationship, then we can be in a position to decide whether it's worth making the effort to reach out to the person. And I believe if you do decide that there's something worth salvaging or you want to make a, a try, that, that you should take the initiative, that and you that, shouldn't wait for the other and, person. Dr. Safer, does it always have to be kind of an all-or-nothing thing? You know, it's not like you're reunited no. with tears in your eyes and we're going to spend the rest of our lives together. Or maybe you'll, just, you know, reconcile and you may decide to see each other, you know, once a year or you keep Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. There's lots of gradations. And that's the other thing. We have these fantasies of kiss and make up. You know, I say if you're able to stay in the same room together and have a decent conversation at holiday dinners when you hated each other before, you've come a long way. And that you don't get just one chance. You know, things can build positively also once you start. Um, Sometimes I, I have what I call six degrees of sibling separation, so it's a little, you know, defined of, of uh, 
from, from total estrangement to really making efforts. But one of the things that I found, I called rapprochement by proxy, where the children, you know, your, your siblings' children and your own children, kind of reach out to each other or begin to talk to each other. And this is sometimes a way where siblings who are even quite estranged can begin to connect. So there's that's lots of ways back to a sibling. Yeah, and that's a great example because, I mean, I'm thinking of my own family as well, and I have, my brothers have children, I have children, and they do get together and they do get along. And some of the issues, and I have to hold back sometimes because yes, when one of my kids will say their cousin said such and such, I kind of want to interject my stuff, and I have to, hey, they have a good relationship. Don't say anything. Well, it sounds like you do a lot of thinking about this, which, you know, already is a wonderful example, you know, for your, for your listeners, because my point is don't just put this on the to-do list someplace beyond below cleaning out your closet. You know, start there. <laughs> think about your wife. Think about your siblings. Think about the relationships with your parents. Think about how it affects your children. And thinking, you know, opens your eyes. Can you that's, give us an example? I mean, you've been You've been in practice for 38 years, so you've had a lot of experience. <laughs> like in your practice with siblings, give us an example perhaps of one of the toughest, maybe, uh, you know, obviously with not revealing who the client is or the patient, but tell us, you know, how specifically someone who had a really tough relationship with a sibling or siblings was able to resolve it uh, in, the, in the process of therapy with you. Well, okay, here's, a, here's an interesting one. When this person came, I had no idea that things were ever going to get better, truly, um, because my, my specialty is siblings who have, as I said, siblings who are disabled or seriously have serious problems. And this was a woman who's in the field, um, because a lot of siblings with problem siblings go into the helping professions, by the way. Um, she had a brother who had been, oh, he'd had epilepsy and all kinds of problems as a, as a child. He used to, when they go to the movies, he'd smash the, the glass window in front of the theater, and, and she was left alone with him often to, to keep him from committing suicide. I mean, it was just terrible. And over the years, and particularly through our work, it's been with me about five years, um, she, uh, he became, he, he got a job that, that allowed his, expressiveness uh, to, I can't say what the job is, but, you know, um, to, to have beneficial uh, effects on society. And they started talking again. And she, she found, she realized over time that he had really grown up. When he had some medical problems, he called her. She helped him with them. And actually, at this point, I would say that they're able to love each other and that, uh, it's not perfect. She sees his, you know, uh, his problems, but they really feel warmly towards each other, and I never would have predicted it, and I know that she didn't either. That, by the way, is an exception. It doesn't but, usually, yeah, it doesn't usually turn wonderful. out that way. Yes, and both people clearly longed for something. The parents really didn't didn't take care of anything. I mean, they, they, they tried to deal with the brother as much as they could, but, but now that the parents are kind of on the, on the side, they really worked on their relationship, and it's just wonderful to see. Uh, and I think she had terrible guilt about it and all sorts of things, but he did his part too. He really stepped up to the plate, and I was just overjoyed to see it. But sometimes what I do is I help people accept that they don't want a relationship with a sibling and they don't have to have it. Do you ever, ever have... 
you know, I'm thinking of like couples therapy. Do you bring the two siblings or three siblings into the and do a joint session with them? Uh, I have invited people to do that. Most of the people that I see, it wouldn't be relevant because the sibling is often seriously disabled, say with cerebral palsy or with mental, you know, with suicide issues, things like that. But I have seen several siblings independently. I actually saw a pair of twins. Um, where the daughter was very, very hardworking and the son was a drug addict. And I didn't see them together, but I did talk to them about talking to each other. So getting siblings in the same room is no easy matter when they're really estranged. But I, I can, you know, help people make the first step to a sibling if that's, or decide whether they want to. You know, a lot of what I have to deal with is people who need to grieve for a, for a relationship that didn't work and to feel less guilt. Yeah, it's more difficult to get siblings together than it is to get estranged couples together. It, it is. Like, yeah, it really is. It's amazing because, again, you know, the, the, that old fallacy: we don't have to do it, but you do because. But you they, do have to do everybody. it. Everybody. What do we want to leave our our listeners? We have a couple more minutes. Besides, uh, I want to obviously mention the book again: Cain's Legacy: Liberating Siblings from a Lifetime of Rage, Shame, Secrecy, and Regret. And we've been talking to Dr. Jeannie Safer. Uh, a therapist, a pre- preeminent sibling expert, and uh, you can go online. You can go to her website. You can go at Amazon.com, bookstores everywhere. Cain's uh, legacy. Uh, what the legacy of this past half hour? What do we want to say? Well, I would like people to use this opportunity to reopen that closed door in their psyches. If you have a troubled sibling relationship, open it up. Look at it. Ask yourself questions. Ask, who is my sibling really? Who is this person as a brother, as a husband, independent of me? What can I relook at this? And can I shift how I feel about what happened between us so that even if I never see them again, I come to terms inside myself? If people do that, I guarantee that they will never want to close their eyes again. Uh, that's a great message. And one last thing, though, from a practical standpoint, because we're heard all over the United, actually all over the world, because uh, it's World Talk Radio. Where do people go? Are there other therapists besides you? You can't see everybody who specialize in, in, in sibling, uh, you know, therapy or counseling. Actually, I kind of created this. <laughs> I created it from my you own. Can only page. go to Dr. Jeannie. <laughs> No, well, I mean, I, I do phone sessions all over the world, but um, there is an internet site called Sibnet, S-I-B-N-E-T dot com, um, which is for people who have siblings who are seriously impaired in one way or another. And then there's a community, an online community of that. But as for people who specialize in siblings, I, I, I'm trying to consciousness raise here so that there will be more people who, you know, my, hopefully my students and people I talk to will, will be inspired to go and look at their own relationships at their patients and uh, at people they know. Thank so, you. Uh, Dr. Jeannie Safer, author of Cain's Legacy, thanks so much for being on the show. I really enjoyed talking to you this morning. Thank you very much for having yeah. me. Great. Well, coming up next, we're going to take a short break, is uh, Kevin Sheridan, Harvard MBA, author of The Virtual Manager, Cutting-Edge Solutions for Hiring, Managing, Motivating, and Engaging Mobile Employees. That's virtual employees. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with a microphone. You're listening to Voice America and World Talk Radio, the single largest producer of Internet talk radio programming in the world. We'll be back in a minute.
Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Do you need directions to solid financial future? If so, the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern, for the Money Answer Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. If you're a golf enthusiast and looking for some great golf properties in the desert southwest, you'll want to make the Golf Realty Network your weekly stop. Hosted by Jane and Al Anderson, the Golf Realty Network is all about living where you play on the golf side. You'll hear from the course pros and vendors, while the real estate side will bring you the top agents and brokers who know how to market or find your golf community home. Tune in to the Golf Realty Network, Wednesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety, and rebroadcast weekly on Voice America Sports. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you are listening to Voice America and World Talk Radio. You can listen to us every Wednesdays live at uh, 10 o'clock Eastern Time. My second guest this morning is Kevin Sheridan. He's author of The Virtual Manager, Cutting-Edge Solutions for Hiring, Managing, and Engaging Mobile Employees. Really interesting book because whether you like it or not, and people are always, I think, saying, well, you know, we, you need to see people face-to-face and some of this virtual stuff isn't working. Well, it's here to stay and it's here in business and we, as business people and uh, as employees and as bosses, uh, we have to learn how to hire, manage and do all this stuff that's important in the virtual world. So, um, welcome to the show. Nice to have you on, Kevin. Thanks so much, Catherine. Pleasure is mine. The pleasure is mine to have you here, and I also have to mention that you are Senior Vice President of HR Optimization and former Chief Engagement Officer, CEO of HR Solutions. Uh, So, um, and the author of this new book, The Virtual Manager. And you talk about in the book, first of all, you, there are benefits to uh, this whole virtual world of business, and there are challenges. Um, and I want to talk about both of those, as you do in the book. But before, my first question is, what is a virtual workplace? Let's just describe that for us. Well, my definition of the virtual workplace and virtual workers is really all-encompassing. It could be that the worker is working in the same city as uh, the corporation or the employer, or it could be that the worker is far-flung in some operation in Penang, Malaysia. It could be a salesperson who's rather transient and moving um, mobile from client to client or prospect to prospect. And it's estimated there are about 30 million uh, virtual or remote workers um, in the United States alone. And as you inferred before, 
that number is going up. This is this is a, a trend that is not going to go away, and there are several things leading to that trend. All right, so that's the definition of of what a, a virtual workplace is. Okay, let's now start with what are the benefits to this? You know, why and are there do the benefits outweigh the challenges? Well, first, let's start with what are the benefits? Why? What is the what are the top benefits of a virtual workplace? Or workforce, I should say. Well, let, let's look at the two constituents. You have the employer um, and the benefits to them, and then you have the, the worker or the, the virtual uh, remote employee. On the employer side, there are some very significant benefits that are being tapped into, not the least of which is if you have less people showing up to a corporate location, you do not need to spend lots of money on corporate real estate whether you're a large corporation or for many of the new startups out there, people are just saying, you stay in your basement, I'll stay in mine, and we'll start this company uh, without uh, need of real estate. A good example is IBM made a very conscious decision to tell 25% of its workforce to stay home. That decision alone led to over $600 million in annual real estate savings. So um, it, uh, also a benefit to the employer is recognizing that the workers themselves appreciate working remotely, and especially the younger generations. When you look at the drivers of employee engagement, they really like workplace flexibility, and they certainly don't want to experience the stress of a commute. So on the flip side, the, uh, the benefits to the, the employee, as I just mentioned, it's, it's a, uh, a relationship that many people value, the ability to, to stay at home and not experience the stressful commute. Uh, as gas prices go up, people get that benefit of not having to spend money on gas and that work-life balance uh, that so many people prize in their job. You know, Ke- uh, Kevin, I think one thing that, as you're talking, that it made me think about this is the fact that sometimes we think of all or nothing. You have a virtual workplace, you work at home, or you go into a brick-and-mortar uh, place to, to do your work. And, and what you're saying, like what would happen with IBM, you can do both. You have a certain amount of people who work at the actual physical building and the ones who work at home, so you can get younger workers who work at home, maybe older workers come to work. I mean, you get a much of a real variety. You please a lot of people besides saving a lot of money. I mean, the employees um, get the benefit of having, I guess, maybe those kinds of choices. It's Oh, exactly. Uh, there are many companies that have what I might refer to as a hybrid virtual relationship, um, some examples would include the big uh, accounting and consulting firms like PwC, Deloitte, where you know you can show up to the corporate lo- location and there would be a workstation for you if you wanted to, or you could work remotely, and, and that flexibility is prized by the employee. Are not-for-profits doing the same thing? Because I know here in New York State, which is where where I am, and Andrew Cuomo is our governor, trying to cut costs, and we have all these huge buildings in Albany, uh, which is the capital, and you know all these the, the state workers, and it's very, very costly. Is this something that uh, that the the not for profits are, are also following this? You know, as you mentioned, IBM's example. Absolutely, um, especially due to the fact that state budgets are tightening up. Um, people are beginning to question the amount of money to, that, that's spent to maintain corporate locations or rent, and so we definitely have seen. Um, some of the uh, the more historic nonprofits revisiting that relationship, and definitely any of the new nonprofit startups 
I would say the lion's share are definitely uh, establishing a vir- virtual workplace. So what are some of the other, the other benefits? I know one of the things that you mentioned in the book is that if you have a, a virtual uh, workplace, um, you can attract and retain top talent, because I assume they can come from anywhere. That's exactly right. As people are looking for the right people and the right jobs, um, if, if you limit your uh, talent pool, if you will, geographically, then you're missing out on potentially really engaged top performers that don't have to be in the same city as their manager or their employer. So it really casts a wider net to, to gain that top talent. With that said, I think uh, uh, one of the biggest mistakes that's made in the virtual manager relationship is the, the manager is not not vetting through the correct questions during the interview process. And as a result, they're hiring the wrong people. They're hiring people that will fail in a remote worker position. Talk to us more about that because you do have to ask the right kinds of questions and the whole thing is kind of done a flip-flop. So what would be the right kinds of questions to ask? This is, this is definitely covered at the very beginning of the book because it's so critical uh, to make, make sure you're hiring people that even, uh, number one, maybe have a, a great successful history of working virtually or have the right characteristics. So in answer to your question, um, there are really three key things you want to look for in a virtual employee. The first is they need to be a self-starter. Um, they, they need to have the, the high energy that it takes to literally roll out of bed and get right to the work at hand and, and, and be productive on their own. They need to be self-motivated where they don't uh, have to have a manager nudging them or cajoling them towards productivity. And lastly, and this is a key one, they need to be able to take things to the finish line on their own. Um, and so one of the mistakes that's commonly made by, made by the virtual manager is that they're, they're hiring people that require um, micromanaging or requiring check-ins and check-ups. And what I say in the book is you, you need to hire the right person and then let go and let that person do what they do best. And if indeed you are finding yourself micromanaging or having to check up and check in and worried that maybe the person's on the golf course as opposed to working, then you, you, I think, in my opinion, you've made the wrong hire. So how do you, I mean, that's a whole new way of doing business. I mean, how do you, like as an HR, how do you train your HR people to hire the right kinds of people? Because as you say, it requires a whole lot of different kinds of skills. You're also going to have some employees who can, you know, let's say somebody who maybe, I mean, and this is an example, like a young person who's like really fast on the computer. You give them a job, they can finish it in an hour. Somebody else may take three hours. How do you, what do you do about that? Well, we're big believers in pre-employment testing for those technical skills, but uh, really 90% of a good hire rests on the attitude of the individual. Um, Technical skills are trainable. Attitude is not necessarily easily trained. And so you're looking for, for the, the qualities of an individual that, that I had just made mention of before. Do they have evidence that they are a self-starter, that they can take things to the finish line and complete them, and are they eager to take on more work on their own without having uh, someone giving it to them proactively? So you say in the book, let's say you have hired the right people, 
then one of the benefits of the uh, virtual manager is increased productivity. And explain that. Well, that's a really interesting um, uh, uh, fact. It's not uh, there's there's in some cases a bias or a myth that uh, the virtual worker is. Uh, is not as productive because they have distractions and they're working from uh, from home and they might dilly dally with a personal task and then get back to work. And actually, our evidence and most of the major research points to the opposite. And I, I actually has led to a discussion with my uh, my brother-in-law was visiting, and he's a virtual worker in Atlanta. And uh, I was telling him about the book, and he said, "Well, Kevin." Uh, my company's got a great deal. Uh, this is the deal they get out of me. I roll out of bed. I immediately am connected, get the emails going, and I'm working all day long right up until when I go to bed. And that is uh, very much the truth, and that leads to higher productivity, which leads to higher pro- profitability for the company. Now we've talked about a lot of the benefits, and there are a lot more you can read about in the book, but let's, let's kind of... Uh, Look at the other side of this because there are benefits, but there are also major challenges to upholding a virtual workforce. And so, let's uh, Kevin talk to us about some of those. For instance, communication. Yeah, that's that's a big one. Um, uh, the, the, one of the biggest I've already covered, which is you know hiring the right people, making sure you're, you've got the right people that will succeed in a virtual position. Uh, communication breakdowns are very common to the virtual relationship. I'll give a couple of examples. Um, there is a there needs to be a finite line between when an email will suffice versus whether there is a um, a live conversation required. Um, in addition, uh, there may be time that, that that the communication should happen in person, and the virtual manager should make a site visit or visit with the employee or have that person come into corporate. One of the greatest lessons that I learned as a virtual manager who manages people who work remotely uh, was something I was guilty of, and that was um, receiving a communication from a remote employee via email and looking at it. And maybe the communication didn't require a response. What I would do before was I'd just delete it, and that's probably the worst thing that you could do. And our best practice advice is always reply now, why is that? Well, the reason that's so important, Catherine, is the, the employee does not have the benefit of coming to a work area where they're having water cool, cooler conversations, they have the high fives in the hallway, they have the dialogue on Monday morning about the game on Sunday, and that leaves the employee feeling very separated, very isolated, detached, and often insecure. And so the more that you can do to reassure and reply and and get back to the the worker, they feel connected. And that is a very important part of the communication challenge. I have two other questions that I'm faced with on a daily basis because I have have one personal assistant who is a virtual assistant. And I never, you know, will go back and forth with emails. And then I, because of, you know, I'm a, a different generation than she, um, I feel like, well, I have to talk to her, and so I will call up and, and talk. And I'm not sure that's always necessary, but I just have this urge to make a connection, and I'm not necessarily always sure when I should just respond with email or pick up that phone and, and make the connection. And sometimes you can ask the person, 
what their preference is or have a reflective, you know, maybe once a quarter just saying, how are we doing on communication? Are you hearing enough from me live? Is there anything I could tweak a bit in terms of how I'm communicating with and to you? And that will give you good information so you can do the recalibrating as it relates to the right communication. Well, you say the communication and through any, and I think I'm quoting you, communication through any vein other than face-to-face is simply not natural. What does that mean? How do we, how do we deal with that if it's not natural? I think that that gets to the, the, the part of what I think is missing in many of the workplace relationships, whether they're not virtual or virtual, and that is putting the human back into human capital management um, or what Bill George uh, talked about in, in his, his great book on leadership, uh, True North, and that is being genuine, um, being personal. Don't just be a manager. Get to know your people that are, are, are reporting to you on a personal level. Just don't talk about work. Ask them what they enjoy doing outside of work. Ask them how their kids are doing or where they're going to college. People want to feel that that human personal touch and so i think that's that that's why it had said that you know it can't all be electronic it can't all be um uh, uh not directly in person or or even over the phone in a live conversation there has to be a uh, personal communication and that brings me to the question of trust because i think that's a, another issue that one wrestles with when you hire somebody as a virtual i've hired virtual uh secretaries or and that whole issue, how can I trust this person? You know, I get all the information and the referrals, but I've never, you know, there's a lot, as you say, when you see somebody face-to-face, uh, there's a lot of unspoken stuff that you can see. And another question I have is, is face-to-face, would that be on Skype? Is it still face-to-face if you have, you know, they don't necessarily have to be in the room? Um, is that one way of perhaps hiring people so that you kind of see them face-to-face if you're hiring somebody from California and you're in New York? <laughs> because... I haven't quite, I, I'm not sure that I have, um, you know, dealt with this whole, the, the virtual uh, manager. Uh, so trust is a big issue for me. You know, you're giving these people all this information and, you know, how do you, what do you do with that? Yeah, uh, <laughs> trust is just the, the bedrock of this relationship, and it's why I dedicated Chapter 2 to a discussion of, of that very topic. And uh, I personally believe that um, a virtual manager is much better off hiring people that they have met in person as opposed to a Skype video or over the phone. Um, that's just a, my, a personal recommended best practice, at least from the beginning, to establish that relationship on a personal level as opposed to uh, a distant level. Um, one, of the, one of the neatest chapters in the book I think uh, sums up all of these uh, challenges, um, and that's the last chapter which uh, I wrote thinking about who is the ultimate remote worker. And immediately after about 10 seconds, it's, it's an astronaut. And interestingly enough, we, we attempted to, to interview astronauts about their experience on communication, on trust, on that feeling of, of how remote they are, and we interviewed a guy that just had a fascinating experience. Uh, his name is Jerry Leninger, and he was a space shuttle astronaut who actually wound up on the Mir space station when it was inoperable for 14 days falling away from Earth. And everything he was citing 
from trust to uh, the poor communication with quote-unquote mission control, i.e. corporate, all of those feelings of separation and isolation were more pronounced, but very much to, akin to what uh, the, the average virtual worker experiences day to day. That's an you know I, I I did read that chapter, but I'm glad you shared that with listeners because that's an amazing story. That's true. That's the ultimate trust. I mean, I can't imagine being in that kind of a position. But um, another thing. Uh, that you mentioned in the book is one of the challenges is uh, technology and tools um, because, yeah, you have technology, it helps virtual workforces to succeed, we know that, but it also increases the chance, as you say, for complications and miscommunication. It does. Um, one of the, the, the keys to employee engagement for all workers is do you have the resources needed to do your job and to do it effectively? technology being one of those resources. Well, for the remote worker, if they're given a shoddy commu- uh, a computer or a shoddy Internet connection or no intranet through which they can communicate a project, project updates or with their peers, that is not going to, going to portend wonderful uh, engagement for the virtual worker. So that should be a priority. You've got to give the, the right technology that's working. Um, also, when it's not working, there should be an immediate help desk because if I'm working non-virtually, if I'm at corporate and my computer um, goes, goes awry, I probably can find another laptop or workstation, move to a different office. The re- remote worker does not have that luxury, so technology is definitely an important uh, priority. Do companies, major companies like IBM and others, they, their HR people work to, uh, I don't know if the word is counsel, but really to, you know, because some of this stuff, I mean, the person may be a good person to be a virtual employee, but they need some help, they need some counseling along the way because it's a new thing for them. Perhaps they've been working in the field or the business for 10 years, you know, at, is the word brick and mortar? I don't know, but you know, going to actually going to an actual office at the corporation, then suddenly they find themselves at home with all of these issues, maybe pro- challenges, ones that can be overcome, but they have to have access to somebody who can help them with it. Our companies, do they have uh, um, help in place, support in place for those employees, for the virtual employees? I think the smart companies, the ones that are on the leading edge as it relates to employee engagement, are indeed providing some type of preparatory training and development for the virtual worker. It could be a a segment of the orientation program. Um, And shockingly, I mean, for all workers, I think there's a dire need for better what's called onboarding. And the onboarding process is making sure you're giving the signals to the worker that they made the right right choice by joining the company. And in, in preparing the groundwork for a successful virtual um, experience, I think that um, people are better prepped in terms of what the expectations will be. Also, the reassurances, if you are feeling alone or isolated, who can you contact? Um, one best practice is if the company has many virtual workers and some are in the same area as an individual that you encourage those uh, workers to get together at a local coffee shop and uh, just just so they feel that connection, because after all, I've always said that coworker uh, satisfaction is really an unsung hero of engagement. There are lots of people that are working in jobs that 
they just they they may not like their boss. They may feel underpaid that they're coming to work every day, or um, because of their their relationship with their coworkers. So, well, Kevin, then in other words, they're not going to be able to go to the water cooler every day and kind of get stuff off their chest or have lunch at the at place of business. So, you're saying at least maybe have access so you can go out for a coffee or a drink or whatever you do so that you can have that kind of camaraderie with your fellow employees. And it doesn't have to be every day, but it could be, you know, once a month, whatever it is. But it's important to do that face-to-face kind of thing. Absolutely. And, you know, one of, one of the things that our research has shown is that people want to have more fun in their job. And, frankly, we spend so much time at work, whether we're virtual or not, we're not having enough fun, and even a statistic that I frequently cite is actually quite shocking about levity and fun is the average five-year-old laughs 113 times each day, and by the time that person is 44 years old, those number of laughs drop to 11, and I find that sad. So smart virtual managers and companies are setting up systems through which virtual workers can take a break, maybe play a game. It could be a video game. It could be um, a word game. Just to take a break, have a laugh, and then get back to work. And we know that fun equals employee engagement. I'm surprised that, uh, to be honest with you, I'm surprised that at 44 people are laughing 11 times a day. I'm not sure I'm hanging out with the right people. But, uh, what you know, a few minutes left. What do, what do we see for the future for this, for the virtual manager? What's, what do, is there anything? I mean, all businesses, uh, you know, profit, not for profit, small businesses, entrepreneurs, big companies that we're all going in that direction or we're already there? I think we're already there and it's going to become even more pronounced. Um, one of the things that uh, when Career Press approached me about writing the book, The Virtual Manager, I was really excited about is that it is a very, very new topic, and there are very few um, books out on the concept. And so, frankly, it was a lot of fun to write because it required um, it required research, a lot of research on my part, and thereby I got to learn a lot myself in writing it. So as companies see that workers want more flexibility, and by the way, when we also measure employee engagement and employee disengagement. We, we know definitively why people will uh, leave a job. And one of the primary reasons for departure or turnover is just that, that mesh of job stress and a lack of work-life balance. And that's why a virtual worker relationship really is a wonderful way to help people not experience the stress of a commute, have more work-life flexibility, and, of course, the benefits from the productivity and the saving side for the company uh, will also drive this continued trend in the future. It's exciting stuff. It really is. It's like a, it's, To me, it's like a whole new world. I mean, everything is like, kind of like the Industrial Revolution was at the turn of the century. Now here we are at the turn of the century, and business is it's, it's a total kind of turnaround change. It's exciting. It is. Yeah, very good uh, a very good analogy, and uh, I, I think I, I can pretty much say that I'm not going to f- personally wind up on a space uh, shuttle or a space <laughs> station. <laughs> but I know <laughs> I'm you happy personally, about that. personally, and this is the last thing because I really wanted to talk about it a little more, but we don't have time. I mean, I was looking at your bio online, and it's really interesting. I mean, you're a guy who takes risks, who does exciting things. You've climbed Kilimanjaro. You've climbed... Uh, the highest peaks in Russia, Mount McKinley. And one of the things that you say, and I think this is, is really important, that all of this comes to play um, 
the things that you do, the risks that you take in your own life, impact the kind of manager you're going to be, the kind of CEO you're going to be. It, it all goes together. And so you... Um, yeah, it does. Um, I, I find that the, the passion that I have for high-altitude mountaineering and doing yeah. the seven summits, um, a lot of what's required to get to the peaks of those summits are also required to keeping people engaged in their job and ex- exhibiting the passion for what they do and the pride in where they work and uh, and doing it virtually. Yeah. Um, we have to say goodbye, and uh, I hate to cut you off because it's it's uh, it's a fascinating topic. I want to make sure listeners know the virtual manager, cutting edge solutions for hiring, managing, and engaging mobile employees. Kevin Sheridan. You can buy it online, Amazon. dot com, bookstores everywhere. Thanks so much for talking with us today. Really enjoyed my, it. My pleasure, Catherine. And I am uh, working virtually. I'm thankful my dog did not bark when the uh, the doorbell <laughs> went off. Good for you. <laughs> Good example. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to Voice America and World Talk Radio. Hope you enjoyed the show. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.